fighting COVID-19 on the front lines from the ER to the ICU and operating table. Doctors and nurses with a front row seat to the coronavirus pandemic weigh in on wearing a mask, the value of social distancing, and the long-term costs of contracting COVID-19. Tonight, what you need to know about the disease from healthcare professionals who see it every day. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to NBC6 Voices. I'm Jawan Strader. We are streaming live on our Facebook and YouTube pages. Thank you so much for joining us once again for this all-important conversation. And please feel free to add your comments and questions. We want to hear from you. Well, this week, Florida shattered its record for weekly hospitalizations, making it one of the biggest coronavirus hotspots in the country. And tonight, we're talking with health care professionals to hear what this virus is really like. I like to call them our heroes. With us, we have Leah Carpenter. She is the CEO of Memorial Hospital West, and also she is a nurse that is still active on the COVID-19 front lines. We have Pauline Louis Magiste. She is the president of the Haitian American Nurses Association. Dr. Armin Henderson is an emergency room doctor at Jack's Memorial Hospital and Dr. Sharon Doncor, a surgeon. We want to thank all of you for joining us. And like, I want to do, applaud you as well, because you all are our heroes. And we want to thank you for your service. Well, uh, Leah Carpenter, let's start with you in this conversation. When it comes to treating COVID patients, what are you seeing every day at Memorial West? So what I'm seeing every day is um, it's twofold. You know, I'm looking at what's happening with my staff, making sure that they have everything that they need on the front lines, the supplies, the PPEs, the ventilators, et cetera. But I'm also seeing the strain that it's playing on them. Um, it is not easy to have such high mortality every day of every week and not be impacted by it from a emotional, mental, and even a physical uh, perspective. I have by far some of the best professionals working on those front lines, but it's tough. It's really tough. It's different than anything any of us have seen in our career. And, and, and you said it's tough. How are you dealing with this, with seeing what you see each and every day? It's tough. Yeah, I mean, how, how do you explain it? You, you see the patients who are struggling. You see families who can't come to visit them. So we're, we do everything that we can from an IT perspective to make sure that we're communicating with families. But it's very difficult for you not only to treat them clinically, to do the jobs that they've been trained to do, but to then also be their families, to also make sure that all of their needs are being met. And for me, more importantly, not more importantly, or equally as important, making sure that my staff, my physicians, everybody has what they need so that they stay safe and their families at home stay safe. So what I see every day is fear. I see concern. I see emotions that vary. I see excitement when we play the Rocky song every time a patient is discharged with COVID. Mm -hmm. So the myriad of emotions, it, it runs the full spectrum. And, and Dr. Henderson, we want to hear from you, and I apologize. You are actually at UM Hospital, correct? Okay. And uh, Yes, that's right. Okay. Well, well, tell us a little bit about what you see every day uh, at, at, at UM Hospital. What's your day like? Uh, so 
I mean, I, I think uh, I echo what Ms. Carpenter says, uh, that, you know, people, staff at the hospital are burnt out. I work with nurse practitioners and nurses who are on the floor, also ICU staff and ER doctors as well. And, uh, you know, with no um, day in sight where this is actually going to get better, I think that people are coming to work a little more tired every day. Um, but in, in terms of the patients, uh, they still come in very uh, scared and very apprehensively as well. Um, a lot of people think that, you know, if you come to the hospital, you may, you have a chance of contracting the virus, which is in a sense true, but we don't want to stop people from coming to the emergency room or to the hospital if they really need the care um, that they need. Uh, and then, you know, the other thing that I think is really burdening on a lot of staff is having to pronounce patients dead every night. Um, and so especially someone like me who works seven days straight, uh, pronouncing patients dead every day for seven days, is it, it gets pretty stressing. I was about to say, uh, how difficult is that for you having to do that? And, um, you know, sometimes it, th this is a sad thing to say, but sometimes we do things so much that we become uh, desensitized by it. But having to say a death or pronounce someone dead each and every day, that has to take a toll on you. For sure. For sure. I think I think in this moment, not just in the hospital, but in the community as well. Uh, death is something that has become pretty, pretty normalized. Um, I just got a call today that my next door neighbor died from COVID-19 as well. Um, and so, you know, it's definitely something that impacts me. And every time I go and see a patient, I try not to make it seem like this is just some mundane task that I have to do. Um, I try to pay my respects to each individual. Um, and when I talk to the family, I'm not callous. I try to make sure that, you know, I, I let them know that we did the best that we could um, but this, this is an interesting time and, uh, and it does, it does take a toll on you. Um, and I, I just try to look at things positively. I come home to my children, um, and, and the life and the energy that they have. And I, I think that that really helps me through. All right. Well, let's, let's check in one now with Dr. Don Core, and let's ask you as a surgeon, how are you helping COVID-19 patients? So yeah, definitely. So I'm a surgeon and, um, I'm board certified general surgeon. So, uh, I get involved um, with these patients either by chance, um, an emergency, a patient may come in with uh, appendicitis or bad gallbladder and inadvertently test positive, um, or there may be a patient that's in the hospital and um, will need surgery but has now converted to COVID positive. And then uh, also patients that have been on prolonged ventilation, so are in the ICU, are not able to breathe on their own, so they have a, a mechanical ventilator breathing for them. And now they're at the, the period of time where we need to change that um, that endotracheal tube in, uh, to a tracheostomy, which is more comfortable for the patient and helps them uh, uh, breathe better and actually hopefully uh, get them to a point where they can get out of the hospital, some of them with the breathing tube um, and some of them to get off of the, the, the uh, ventilator. And uh, you, you, kinda, you heard from Dr. Henderson, you heard from Leah, and you heard them talk about death as well. And how difficult has that been for you? And you heard about, uh, I think it was Leah talking about the rock song, when the rock song is played and that shows that someone has been discharged after beating COVID-19. Let's talk yes. about what you see. Yeah, so, you know, I, my, uh, what I've seen is a little bit different because I'm coming in a lot of times at the tail end where the patient has been managed uh, by our excellent ICU team, excellent hospitalists, 
Um, they're not able to breathe. They're already intubated. The family is very, uh, you know, the family can't come to the hospital right now. We talk to them on the phone and let them know that we want to perform this procedure. And um, it's difficult because they're not able to see their family before and after surgery. Um, what I'm doing is actually put placing a permanent breathing tube in them. And these are patients that are very sick. Uh, we know that 40% uh, of these patients with COVID are getting ARDS, which is adult respiratory distress, distress syndrome. And they're also getting uh, long-term pulmonary fibrosis and inter interstitial pulmonary disease. So I think you know a, a big problem is the fact that, that a lot of these patients will have long-lasting uh, pulmonary effects. Mm -hmm. um, it's always great when we see a patient that's able to get off the ventilator, get the tube out and uh, and, and beat it. And, you know, that is a shining light um, amidst all of this, uh, this, uh, uh, you know, depressive symptoms of seeing so many patients, like Dr. Henderson said, you know, a lot of mortalities. Amen. And Pauline, as head of the Haitian American Nurses Association, tell us how nurses are dealing with working the extremely long hours, um, the long weeks and the emotional shifts. Yes, thank you, Jerron. I think everyone that has spoken before me has um, said it. Yes, it is very tiresome on, on uh, nurses. President of the Haitian American Nurses Association, um, a lot of my nurses and Mrs. Carpenter work for the Memorial Healthcare System, Jackson Healthcare System, Broward Healthcare System. So in various hospitals in both Dade, Broward and Palm Beach County, because we have a system chapter there as well. So what we're seeing is not just the physical exhaustion that everybody's talked about, and I think Mrs. Carpenter mentioned, is the mental exhaustion, the fear, the anxiety. And then also to you have the nurses, a lot of our nurses, what people uh, don't talk about too, they're dealing with family. You have Dr. Uh, I think Henderson, who just mentioned about his neighbor, they're dealing with family members that are COVID as well, not being able to see their family, not being able to be there to provide care for their family members uh, because they're, they're working. So it is a toll. It is a mental toll as well as a physical toll. And Pauline, you said the mental toll, because we've heard about that. And this is an age, especially with COVID-19, where we have to address mental health, of course, and make sure that it is addressed, make sure that people get the necessary help that they need. Are they getting that help? Are you seeing nurses get that help that they need when it comes to mental health? Because this is something many of us have never, ever seen in, a, in our lifetime. Yeah, yeah you're right. Um, yes, you know, people say that your nurses, you're trained to do this. Yes, we are trained to care for the sick. That is our job. We went to school for it, just like the doctors are trained to do their part. We did, I don't think there was anything in the nursing, and I'm also a nursing instructor. So I, I'm training new nurses of the future. There's nothing in the nursing work that prepare you for what we are experiencing right now with this pandemic. So the mental aspect of it, is there anything there in place? Uh, no. Uh, one of the things that we've done in the Haitian, in the Haitian American Nurses Association, we started doing uh, meeting sessions, Zoom meetings for our members so that they can vent. And when they come in and they speak and they vent about what's going on, their experiences, I have new grads, new nurses that are just starting into the profession and 
you know, I have one of my students who just started like three months before COVID. So she's panicking. What do I do? Do I continue to work? Do I quit? Do I this? And you have that mental aspect of it. The ones that have family members who have they're caring for parents, their elderly family members mm-hmm. that they can't see, uh, or their family members are sick, but they can't really help them out. So is there help? There are different organizations that are providing uh, wellness um, care. One of the things we do with uh, AHANA, we have a few nurse practitioners that are mental health specialists. Uh, we've provided webinars and Different topics uh, we've talked about in different uh, scenarios, uh, webinars where they can come in and just vent and encouragement from our, we call them seasoned nurses of the, of the profession who's been through different um, eras where there was uh, an issue to help them, to guide them. But Very good. the long-term care, the long-term mental uh, impact of this Yes, not just for the frontliners, but also to for our community. Amen. Amen to that. And I have to ask all of you this. I, I want to hear from all of you in regards to the disparities, because we've heard about um, this having a, a, a stronger impact on the black and brown communities. I want to ask you, all of you, because you're in the healthcare industry, I want to ask you, have you noticed that? Have you seen more black and brown patients um, in your hospitals, uh, in, in, the, in the rooms, the hospital rooms and everything else that you've seen? And, so, and Leah, let, let's start with you, Leah. So absolutely. Let me say that, Juan. Absolutely. We do see that disparity, but I think everyone needs to understand that a big reason for that disparity is because of disparities that existed long before COVID came into the picture. So if we have African-Americans who are, or other people of color for that matter, who are not getting good quality care, don't have access to care, that means that when COVID hits, they have other comorbidities, what we call other issues, other diseases, other problems that compound COVID and make it much more difficult for them to survive or to thrive or even to, you know, in their post-recovery time. So if you um, have not been taking care of yourself because you're not able to, because you either are uninsured or underinsured, then you will have more, a higher probability of having diabetes, having heart disease, having all of those other things. And then COVID comes along and compounds that in a way like we've never seen before. So yes, in fact, the African-American community, especially because of disparities that have existed for such a long period of time, uh, is the reason why COVID is impacting our community so badly. Dr. Henderson, I want to hear from you. Yeah, I, I agree with uh, what Ms. Carpenter says. Um, there are uh, disparities amongst the black community, amongst people of color, uh, specifically in South Florida, that when other things that compound, uh, as, as was said, uh, what happens is even in things like crisis, like hurricanes, uh, where people can't find shelter then they, and they're lo- or they lose electricity, then if they're already on a ventilator or something that requires electricity, then they may not be able to get uh, the oxygen that they need and that may put them in the hospital or exacerbate an already um, chronic condition that they may have. Um, but aside from that, I want to say that, you know, a lot of times people who are of uh, low income, like in terms of class, they may live in, in one house. And if someone in, in that house, one person, it may be three generations in one house. If one person in a house gets coronavirus, 
and, and that's the only place that they can afford to live, then that means that everybody in that house is, is going to get sick. And so I, I think that's another way in which um, people uh, put themselves at or are at risk of, of suffering uh, bad effects from, from the coronavirus as well. Um, so, yeah, and it's, it's not just that, you know, black people or people of color are not taking their medications or are not listening to their physicians. There are systemic things within medicine that uh, that have caused people, particularly in area codes that have a majority of black people, like Overtown, Liberty City, Miami Gardens, where I am, that uh, these things uh, basically decrease people's life expectancy, sometimes in the order of 15 years, walking distance from other neighborhoods that are literally like a mile away. So when you already have those people dying at a decrease um, at a decreased rate, at an increased rate or at a lower age, and then you throw on a crisis like the pandemic or a hurricane, uh, then it makes things that much worse. Amen. Pauline? Uh, yeah, I think I, I second what everyone says. Um, with the, the community aspect of it, when it comes to the disparities, and, and I can speak from uh, the Haitian perspective, uh, um, uh, background. Uh, we are part, of course, of the, the Black uh, community. Uh, the disparity that we're seeing in the Haitian community, and I think Dr. Henderson mentioned it at the beginning, of uh, people not wanting to go to the hospital because of the fear of getting COVID when they go to the hospital. So you have uh, the people with the previous comorbidities, they have the chronic diseases like the diabetes, hypertension, and heart disease, not seeking help not continuing their medical treatment because of the fear of getting COVID-19. Uh, it's one of the things that I'm involved in right now, coalition, which is called the Haitian American uh, Coalition of South Florida for COVID-19, trying to collect data, trying to see how we can collect data to, to pinpoint like how many Haitian Americans have been uh, impacted. Because when you go to look at the demographics, the demographics just says, are you black, white, you know, non-Hispanic? Uh, but it doesn't say as far as your ethnicity, where you come from, your race, and so on and so forth. So the, those, the biggest issue that we're having is education, educating the community, trying to get rid of that stigma of the fear of going to the hospital, trusting the healthcare. You have so many myths in, in, in going on. So about wearing a mask, uh, not, if you wear a mask, it's gonna deprive you of oxygen. So we did a, we did a whole serious focus on that. I, I did a video posted on that. So just getting the stigmas that is out there and debunking the, the myths that is out there that's creating that fear. Because by the time they get to the hospital, they're so advanced, the disease has already so advanced. You know, we had a member who cousin did not want to go to the hospital, young, okay. 40, I think 42, did not want to go to the hospital. But when he finally got to the hospital, they intubated him and he died 48 hours later at the age of 42. So I think educating the community is a big, big aspect of this and targeting those people using the people that they would listen to because if the right person is not delivering the message, we know our community, we have a tendency not to pay attention. 
Amen. Okay. Okay. See, you, you, you're bringing something else up there. You're talking about education. You're talking about misinformation that swirls across the country in our community. So Dr. Uh, Don Core, I want to hear from you on this and I want to hear from all of you as well. We, we've heard from Pauline touch on it, but with so much misinformation out there, where do you get your information from? What sources do you use? What would you recommend to everyone that is watching this right now? So it so exactly. I think a big problem uh, now is misinformation. Um, anybody can post anything online uh, and claim to be uh, uh, you know a specialist in the area. And we've seen this with uh, you know uh, COVID nineteen. Um, just to reinforce what everybody said uh, just previously, we know that there are, are vast inequities in the healthcare system. We've known this from before COVID nineteen. There's data that has shown the difference in, in, in outcomes in, in pregnant uh, uh, black women, also in uh, pediatric surgical outcomes in, in black children. So COVID-19 has just highlighted the inequities in the healthcare system, which we see, which needs to be addressed. Um, and then on top of that, you have uh, a distrust of the healthcare system uh, because we're not getting uh, the best uh, healthcare treatment. And so people are like we've said, is af afraid to go to the hospital and are not exactly trusting what's going on. And then on top, coupled with that, you have a lot of information, misinformation, Facebook, Instagram, um, a lot of memes that people, you know, will read a quick meme and all of a sudden they, they are taking that uh, to heart. Um, it's been said that, uh, you know, for every uh, false piece of information, you have to give that same person uh, the correct information eight times before they actually believe it. Wow. So what wow. I tell what I tell um, my colleagues, my friends, family who ask me all types of questions, I tell them that you know the same way that you would go and and shop for a car or look for a house, you know, you don't just take the the first amount of information, uh, the first uh, example of information that you have. You have to vet the information. You have to see what the source is, make sure it's a trusted source. And it has to make sense. And uh, this is a big issue that we're having is the misinformation out there. Leah, I want to hear from you on this particular issue. So, you know, it's, I can't I can't agree with Dr. Donko more, but a big piece of this is a going to the right places for your information and b knowing how to, to interpret that information and and how do you understand what you're being told. So basic things like wearing masks, washing hands, social distancing doesn't seem that complicated for the healthcare worker because we do that every day. It's very difficult to consistently do that out in the community. But people really just don't understand how imperative it is that everyone do that or we will not be able to get control over this disease. So I think that absolutely the information is all over the place. And in part, if we're really honest with ourselves, it's a science that is ever evolving. This thing only started back in the fall, right? Early fall, early winter in China, then it gets to the United States. So we're learning more and more about this virus. And sometimes the information changes quickly, even for me and my own organization. We change our mode of what we're doing or how we're doing it as soon as we find out that there's some something new in the science. What I would encourage everyone though, is to follow the science. Don't listen to your neighbors, don't listen to the rumors, don't listen to people who are trying to convince you of things that maybe really aren't true. What you need to do is go to the CDC website, go to the, uh, to the other reliable sources that are out there, 
get your information. And if you don't understand it, seek out healthcare professionals who can help you to understand it. Um, we will not, we cannot get control of this virus if everyone does not help us. But I also agree that there's a great deal of fear out there that if you come to the hospital, that you're going to somehow contract it. And I can assure you that in my organization and most organizations throughout South Florida, we've taken extreme care in how we manage COVID-19 patients on how we separate COVID-19 patients from the general population. And what we saw after that first outbreak was that so many people were afraid to come to the hospital by the time they got to us without COVID, by the time they got to us after a stroke or after a heart attack or not managing their diabetes or kidney disease, they were far too, too far along for us to help them. So they've got to understand that hospitals are safe places and that we're managing that in a way that keeps them safe. Amen. And, and you know what? We, we are talking about misinformation. And along those lines, it brings me to my next question about children. Uh, of course, we heard the president say that uh, that children are immune uh, from from COVID-19 um, or they don't get too sick and they can fight it off and everything else. So, Dr. Henderson, I want to ask you, this brings me to you now. Uh, why are we seeing the spike in cases involving children? And, you know, what do you believe is behind the spike in numbers? So I, I think that. Uh... Well, it's not what I think. If you go to the CDC website um, and actually look at some of the retracted information, uh, well, everything is politicized right now. And um, right now there's a, a big uh, misinformation campaign going against uh, Dr. Fauci, um, who is the director of the CDC. Um, but in, in those papers that I think are about to come out, they're saying that children spread are super spreaders, basically, and that schools could potentially be super spreading sites. And I think what's behind telling people that uh, that telling children that they're immune or they're not going to face any bad symptoms, et cetera, even though we've seen these outbreaks at schools that have recently opened in different places across across the country, um, what's behind that is that they want people to get back to school. And if people get back to school, then people can get back to work. Um, and and I, and I, if people get back to work, you don't have to pay unemployment, um, and you can start the economy back up. And I, I think it really goes to the fact that. We, we can't go back to, to normal. School has to change. Um, the way we do school is, has to change. Um, people need unemployment. This is a crisis situation. And we can't just throw kids into the fire and say, oh, it's not going to be that bad. Um, and then turn around and say, oh, I'm sorry. Uh, you know, it actually is that bad. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, children are going to get the virus. Children are more likely to spread it to other individuals, even though they may not uh, have symptoms. But even with that said, we've had uh, children as young as like 17 or 18 die um, in, in, in Florida and even younger in other places as well and be on uh, fighting for their life on, on um, ventilators and things of that nature. And you don't want it to be your child. So I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't listen to what individuals say that have no science background at all. If you want the most up-to-date up information, go to a physician and ask them directly, um, particularly a physician that, that's not being politicized on TV. Go to the CDC website um, and, and other trusted uh, websites like the CDC, um, particularly those that have ORG on the back. Um, and, and yeah, that's pretty much it. Okay, and I want to, uh, Pauline, I want to, I want to ask you this question because, of course, we're running out of time. But I want to ask you this because, um, talking to a number of nurses out there, Pauline, I want to ask you what's not being discussed. What is it that people don't know about 
what you and many other nurses and doctors are putting in each and every day that maybe even the media, we don't talk enough about. You are muted, Pauline. We can't hear you. I'm sorry. Okay, go ahead. My apologies. Sure. What I'm seeing, um, I, I talked about the mental aspect. I talked about the fatigue. Um, I, one of the doctors mentioned about Dr. Henderson having to pronounce uh, a patient uh, dead every day. A nurse who's taking care of a patient with no family members uh, around. Normally in the hospital, if you're a nurse, you're taking care. I'm an ICU nurse. I'm a CV critical care, uh, cardiovascular ICU nurse, which my unit, the, the critical care COVID unit in the beginning of this pandemic. So watching your, your coworkers um, calling a family member just before their family member is about to take their last breath, having to tell this family member that, please say your goodbyes. That is something that takes a toll on a nurse mentally and psychologically. So these are the things that we're seeing. Yeah. The workload is a lot. Uh, when you have a hospital that is full to capacity, but don't have enough nurses to take care of those patients, uh, increasing the nurse to patient ratio because of that. I know a lot of the hospital, and I'm not talking down on any hospital, they, we weren't prepared for this. This was not something we weren't prepared for. The hospitals themselves were not prepared for this. We're learning as we go. I think now we're a little bit more comfortable, but in the beginning of this, we were not prepared. We were not prepared with the, uh, uh, the equipments that we needed. We were not prepared with the amount of staff that you needed. Um, so nurses having to do things that, yeah, we see people die every day. You have the family member there, you have other people there, but you're that one nurse who can go into the room, gowned up, mask, shield, everything, and you're the only one. And you know, we put our we put our, our phones, our cell phones in plastic bags and biohazard plastic bags so that we can bring it to the room and then having to sterilize your phone when you're when you're done having the family members say good, their goodbyes and listening to the family members crying and screaming because of their loved ones dying over the phone. That's something that takes mental aspect on, on someone and psychological aspect. I know a lot of the hospitals, they try their best to you know, make the nurses feel that they're valued. Mm -hmm. But I think they need to focus on the long-term effect, the psychological effect. We appreciate all the gifts, all the wonderful accolades that we get. But we have to remember that we are two humans. Yes, it is a job that we're doing, but there's an aspect of the job that we tend to forget, which is the psychological and mental aspect of the job. So post-traumatic stress syndrome is a big deal. And having to go home to your family after work, after working 12, you have nurses that are working four days straight, 12 hours, and then having to have their kids, not seeing their kids and not being uh, uh, there for their family. So mm. these are things that I don't think the general public sees or they're talking about. We love the praises, we love yeah. the accolades, but we got to talk about that aspect of it when it comes to frontline workers, 
uh, not just healthcare workers, but frontline workers as well, uh, whatever aspect of it. Yes. Amen. And we have to bring more attention to that. And uh, we we have run out of time. But but before we go, uh, Leah Carpenter, I'm just going to say what you wrote, because you said something here that's very powerful. You you commented to me what the public does see is that our amazing nurses, respiratory therapists, PCAs, pharmacists continue to come back each and every day to serve our patients. And this community, in spite of the stress, physical challenges, anxiety, sadness, etc. That PTSD is expected for many of the frontline heroes. This is something that I know I have to do a better job of, but making sure that we bring attention to those working on the front lines who see this every day. I want to thank each and every one of you. But before we go, listen, we, we, we also want to provide information out there and resources for all of you that may be watching right now from the latest on coronavirus cases in your neighborhood to testing sites and even unemployment and rental assistance. We want you to head on over to the NBC6 website at NBC6.com forward slash coronavirus. There is all the information you need to help you with some of the many questions you may have. Dr. Henderson, Dr. Doncor, Leah Carpenter, uh, Pauline Louis Magiste, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate each and every one of you and not all heroes wear capes. You're yeah. definitely <laughs> yes. all of, all, each and every one of you. Oh, and before we sign off, this is very important. We just want to acknowledge that history was made this week history mm. when former mm. vice president joe biden chose senator kamala harris to be she's the first black woman and first asian american on a major party ticket in american history harris is a prosecutor turned politician the child of indian and jamaican immigrants she attended the historically black college howard university where she joined alpha kappa alpha sorority in 2016, Harris became just the second black woman in U.S. history to be elected to the U.S. Senate. They both appeared together for the first time since the announcement today in Biden's hometown of Wilmington, Delaware. Now, if Joe Biden is elected president, Harris will be the country's first female vice president. Yeah. And that is history, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah. Thank you so much for watching tonight. We'll be back here next week. And please feel free to tweet me at JawanNBC6 or follow me on Instagram at JawanNBC6. Let me know what you thought about uh, tonight's show and our wonderful panelists. Again, we want to thank them for their service and thank you so much for being part of this conversation. Have a good evening. See you later.